So a guy walks into a bar and says, Hey, I want to be so grounded in myself, so certain of who I am and so stable in it that I can hear anything from anybody and I know it's not going to sway that. The bartender looks at him and says, Well, what does he say? Welcome to the Serve Conscious Podcast. My name is Stefan. I'm a meditation and mindfulness teacher. And recently I decided that all of these principles get tested properly in the grit and grime of service life. You know, stuff like waiting tables. So that's where I've been in the field, learning everything I need to know about how to master ourselves, doing very unglamorous things, old school. I'm bringing back a lot of bones and I'm speaking with some amazing people. So listen to find out how this all comes together. All right, well, here we are, episode 24. Goodness gracious. It's been like six months now since I started doing this show. And have I learned anything, you know? And when I say learned, um, I mean, you know, have I figured out how to slow down, get out of the way, or get at least the inner mental obstacles out of the way so that I can really pay attention to what's important, you know? Can I really listen? Can I really hear the lessons of life? Whether I'm being directly taught or I'm just in a situation where there is an imperative for me to learn from that situation, which is always, it's always. Even when something seems boring, even when something seems mundane and routine, there is always something to learn. There's always an opportunity to grow. That is why I started this project in order to basically promote that idea and get everyone plugged into it. This boring life or job you think you have has everything to teach you. So am I practicing that, you know, rather than just like acknowledging it? Am I actually practicing it? I hope so. <laughs> I, I hope so. I am actually doing listening um, practices. I do a mindful communication technique practice. It's quite, it's quite an involved practice. It's very simple. It's very, it's really extraordinary. Um, but it does require a commitment of time and energy and it requires a partner. But it is awesome. It's a Zen. It's a Zen practice. It's one that is based in Zen. This was uh, taught to me by a Zen coach, uh, Greg Klaumenzer. He's been on the show before. And uh, we meet once a month now to practice this. And uh, he does it like every day at least. He's got a practice partner because you need a partner um, over video chat or in person to do this. And it has an incredible effect. It seems simple. You're simply just communicating and listening and responding in this formalized way. And during this process, which seems deceptively simple, it is incredible how quickly I notice my very state transforming. I'm suddenly uh, calmer, more attentive to the moment, uh, better not only at listening, but also then speaking in a way that is calm, measured, thought out, and um, available to new insights. Because uh, with this communication technique, you're not at all uh, obliged to respond. Actually, it's discouraged that you even respond to what the person is saying. You simply acknowledge that you've heard them, and then you respond to their query, their cue, for you to now make a considered response, and you're given all the time you need to uh, think and speak in a considered, mindful way. And this freedom from having to follow certain social cues and perform and, you know, emphasize perform, mime the act of listening, and then, of course, be obliged to offer something of value in reference to what someone said, and all 
of the kind of whirling paranoia that uh, comes with that. You're free from all that with this technique, and it really does provide you with a fascinating new state of being as you interact with another. So yeah, I'm looking forward to somehow sharing this practice with you guys on whatever medium makes it uh, most possible, and seeing what it shifts for you guys. Uh, the practice itself, for me, uh, shifts my very understanding of what communication is and our mindset, our default mindset in communication that really disrupts it. And also, it is a meditative, contemplative practice um, that, uh, like any good meditative, contemplative practice, makes all of life thereafter, the entire day and all of its subsequent events after the meditation, um, that much better. And uh, Greg has said this is an absolute must uh, to prime him for anything you know, performative in the day, like speaking in front of a group or teaching oriented or, you know, anything where he's got to be of service. And um, I have noticed the same benefit too. So Greg's website has um, more info on this and um, what he facilitates with it, which I can leave in the uh, show notes again. Yeah, and I think mentioning this has this very uh, tidy way of leading in to what I wanted to talk about today, and that is the art of listening, and really the way that we interact as as social beings, and how much anxiety is there, and actually I'd like to highlight in today's episode that there is more anxiety than you even think there is. So you know what's funny? I, I just realized this. Um, working with people, and I have worked with a number of people in the hospitality industry who don't like interacting with people. Which sounds funny, I know, but that there is plenty of like roles in like a bar restaurant that are more suited to people who are excellent workers. Excellent at, um, you know, just like crafting at producing results, you know, with their hands and uh, the sweat of their brow. Um, but like, you know, um, they don't as much involve interacting with people. So the burden of human need and all the challenges therein um, is not something these people have to bear. They can just put their head down and work. And these people are often very interesting people. They are often very brilliant people. They just don't like the part where their brilliance has to interface with another human. <laughs> and potentially conflict, you know? Potentially create friction. I don't know. I don't know what they're afraid of. You know, I don't know what's so scary about talking to someone. Actually, I do. I do know. It, it's, a, it's a mental construct. You know, it's a perceptual uh, sense of threat, you know, to one's own sense of self. That's what interacting with another human is. Like, it's going to threaten your sense of who you are. When they then put their own self and needs on the table. It could challenge a very fragile framework of yourself that, you know, you've built up. And, you know, this sort of, like, resentment for people is not because people are innately terrible or threatening. Their actions and behaviors simply threaten your particular sense of yourself. So, you know what's funny, though? These people who say that they don't like talking to people, what I've found is that the talking to people part they don't have trouble with, actually. What they really mean is they don't want to listen to people. <laughs> because if you hear these people talk to people, they're talking to people. Words are flowing really easily, but they don't stop. They actually just keep talking about themselves. 
which one could actually just call talking at someone, you know, just saying all the stuff going on with them, going on in their head, going on in their life, all of their struggles and hopes and dreams. And then that person, you know, puts their opinion in and it literally bounces off (laughs) this person's own uh, story and they get back to talking about themselves. They're not good at listening. That's why they don't like people. They can't process what people tell them. They can't slow down their own absorption in themselves long enough to listen to people. And maybe they suspect that, you know. And all they really know how to do is talk. They don't know how to listen. So when they say they don't know how to talk to people, what they mean is they don't know how to interact. That's really the challenging part, you know. Speaking to people, like the the output is easy, really. And maybe it isn't for everybody. A lot of people might have trouble forming their internal state into words. Fine. The biggest challenge for me is listening, you know, it's with taking it in, processing it, displaying understanding, you know, and care about what this person says and where they're coming from and all the things pregnant within what they're saying. They have trouble with that, and so do I sometimes. But if you just told them to stand in one spot and just like sound off about whatever's going on in their life, they do that pretty easily. It's uh, it's receiving that's always hard. Because, and you know, I've experienced this quite intensely in my early adulthood years, let's say later into my 20s too, actually. When someone expresses something and it is directed at you, there is now a pressure to process it properly and offer something useful and relevant in return. And with me, there was always this neurosis and anxiety that I would not offer the right thing in return. And literally, like any human being I was talking to, especially if they were like a new human being, like a stranger, they would be, like, evaluating my response like it was some sort of audition, you know, for, like, a role. (laughs) A role in their life as awesome character. And um, and that if I didn't say the absolute perfect thing, then, um, you know, I, I was somehow a failure. Perfectly worded, perfectly insightful, you know, just, yeah. It had to be great. I put such pressure on myself to say something great, you know. We'll get to how people don't really necessarily need that at all. If you're listening, I bet none of you listening right now could say, when you say something to someone, they need to blow your mind with a response. No. They just have to acknowledge that they've heard you. But that was my opinion. Because that was my deranged inner world <laughs> at the time. And um, that's why myself, and actually, as it turns out, most of the population communicates better, or at least like more readily, with less anxiety, at least that kind of anxiety, about the appropriateness of the response um, on like text or chat, right? It's like... Internet chat and texting is is far better to just first take a moment to think about your response and then carefully craft something. Email, all that stuff I loved. I was a writer, still kind of am. That's how I like to communicate, in a quiet room so I can contemplate, draft, edit, rewrite, and then not have to experience the full emotional spectrum of the response, you know, because they're just disembodied from the interaction, really. And, you know, two-dimensional words on a screen. And that does come with its own sort of payload of anxiety, because you don't get to see and evaluate this response, and you're just kind of left wondering, you know. There is no, like, super easy way out of human interaction (laughs) anxiety-free if you're this neurotic. Um, but I guess this was easier than the 
real-time, on-the-fly uh, exchange of words. You know, live, in action. You can't, like, edit or delete. It's put out there, and you have to now deal with, like, the ramifications of it as soon as it's on the table. And that drove me nuts for a while. <laughs> I mean, it's just so simple. Like, we're designed to talk and communicate and exchange words and information and sounds and emotional responses. But, like, I had this crazy inner critic that um was essentially, like, this ruthless, like, cigar-chomping, like, magazine or book editor, you know, who's, like, looking at what I wrote and like, man, there's no magic in it, she. You got no talent, kid. <laughs> like, you know, just brutal. And interestingly enough, you know, this voice left me largely alone when I was interacting with people that I knew very well and was very comfortable with. How interesting. So, you know, this voice isn't really actually criticizing what's being said. It's more just like imagining the critical voice of a person you don't quite know yet. It's just simply a fear of the unknown. That's all that voice is. The other person almost definitely isn't thinking that. Um, I know to some extent we may more or less evaluate the person we're speaking with. Hardly that much and hardly that consciously as the other person might imagine, you know? Like when two people meet each other and they're speaking, each person is imagining the other person, evaluating them so much more intensely than they actually are, which is just such a comical reality of, you know, the the social human. But consciously, on any, like, you know, really expressed level, they're not spending so much time and energy investing judgments into you, you know? They have themselves to worry about. (laughs) God, get over yourself, you know? (laughs) But, you know, that's often really a sort of... um, I guess you can call it defense mechanism in the face of the unknown. And it can occur in any situation. Actually, it occurred for me when I began podcasting. Yeah, you know, meditation teacher, used to talking to people, hospitality professional for 13-ish years now, you know. No problem, get on a microphone and speak. No, it's a new medium. For me, I had never podcasted or been on a podcast or been recorded doing anything. I never did any acting or anything like that. So, to record a podcast and be presenting my voice and my ideas and everything in a medium I wasn't familiar with, which is essentially like talking to a stranger or like a different species of like human that I'd never spoken to before, you know, the world of podcast listeners. Um, I had a tremendous fear of saying something that was not valuable or presenting myself in a way that just didn't work. And, uh, of course, we also end up thinking about a bunch of other things, too, like the quality of our speaking voice. So, yeah, I was pretty racked with nerves, and I did a lot of, like, you know, Recording, re-recording, scrapping everything, starting again, writing everything out, just reading that to, you know, stay safe and anchored, rather than what I do now, which is, you know, basically just sit here and muse off the top of my head and uh, occasionally refer to notes to make sure I ticked all the boxes. Um, Yeah, then it was a highly neurotic experience, just, when was it, June of last year, like 10 months ago or something. 11 months ago. All right, so I want to actually break something down here before I weave too tangled of a web. Um, I found in my experience, and, um, and what I've been taught as well, is that there's really two main types of bad listeners. There's the one type who finds um, they get bored with people. People are not stimulating enough for them. That would be what... Um, I fall under. Probably, anyway. Um, These categories can bleed into each other, and I'll explain why in a minute. Uh, The second category is 
someone who gets too much stimulation from people. People overwhelm them. And these are people that perhaps wish to be good listeners. They're maybe interested in people, but they cannot handle the input. Now, this can all get um, layers of complexity piled onto it. For example, someone who appears to be bored and understimulated by people has actually just built up walls and boundaries around themselves because they are actually quite sensitive, and this is their way of protecting themselves. Uh, they protect themselves with uh, self-absorption. I could very well be one of those people, or you could be too if you fancy yourself one of those over-talkers who's uh, not as interested in the opinions of others. Maybe you're just worried about how much of that person's, you know, really intense, quote-unquote, energy might get in. But let's just keep it simple, though. Keep it neatly divided into those two categories. Those who don't get enough stimulation from people and those who get too much. Either one, there is the same root problem. And that is your sense of yourself is too fragile. What does that mean? It means not like, oh, you don't know who you are, you know. It's like, oh, you know, what do I want to be when I grow up? What truly inspires me? No, that's not what that means. You could have a very strong sense of identity, of your place in the world, um, of your story, all that stuff, but that is not truly yourself. Those are mental constructions of yourself. Your actual self is not at all defined by these sort of temporary things these ephemeral, fleeting, impermanent things. Your actual self is an inner state that is stable and continuous and resilient to all of this stuff. And it's always there. It's a question of how established in it we are and how connected to our true self we really are. I won't get into the definition, the full definition of our true selves right now. It's beyond the scope of this episode. And it does require a certain amount of, let's call it like mystical language, you know, language that comes from like Eastern mystical practices, uh, because our true selves, beyond all of this stuff, all of our ideas of ourselves in our minds, that is an endless source of inner exploration by mystics and by practitioners, and by people like myself who meditate every day, and yourself if you do as well. You are constantly exploring the deeper and deeper dimensions of who you really are, beyond who you thought you were, right? What your mind thought you were, what your mind has been telling you you are, erroneously, <laughs> for God knows how many decades. So, what I consider more valuable than defining the, you know, capital S self, as they say, is a sort of suggestion of your experience of your true self. And it feels something like this. So let's say you're in a situation and, you know, there's a part of you that's maybe a bit stressed out. There's a part of you that is worried. And there's this sort of like, you know, cycle of dialogue going on in your head. Or something is happening, and you're having a certain experience of it, but then there's a place within you that is sort of beyond all of that, or beyond the sort of disruptions that your mind and body's experiencing. And it's just sort of like watching things happen. It's just kind of like stable and aware and observing. Maybe it's amused, and it's absolutely serene and calm. You may have moments where suddenly awareness of this switches on for just a moment. Some part of you that's not, you know, moving and active and narrating and commenting. That, that place does exist. And take a moment right now and see if you can just notice any area within your experience that is not in a state of, you know, motion, agitation, 
disruption, confusion, buzz. What is that place, that clear place? That is your true self. And the stronger our rootedness in that, the less we get disrupted by external experiences. Because this true self is, in a sense, invincible. I mean, everything else can be annihilated pretty easily. Our minds and bodies are pretty fragile. But our true self is this sort of aware, wise intelligence that really isn't vulnerable to any of the wear and tear that this life can throw at us. However, when we're having an experience that is challenging, our mind will tell us that our self is threatened, that who we really are is threatened by the situation, because our mind has us convinced that we are our mind, our body, our story, our hobbies and interests, our own constructed identity. So if that gets threatened, then we think our very, very self, our eternal self, our, our soul, you know, all of that stuff, it's all threatened, when in fact it is not. But that is why doing something as simple as listening to someone, taking in their internal state, that's why it can throw you off so easily. Because if you are the second example of bad listener, you are the kind of person that gets overwhelmed by people, it's because you're absorbing so much of them. Because when we're talking to people, we're not just absorbing their words. We're absorbing their emotional state. We're absorbing their all of their baggage, all of their deep traumas, anything kind of radiating off of them. This has been sort of validated by science, or at least they're like beginning to crack open, you know, the surface of this reality. But you're going to have to just trust me on this for now. And it is just experientially true uh, once anyone really pays attention to their experiences and, and really how individuals can affect other individuals by not even saying anything. We have this incredible radar that can uh, pick up someone's internal state. We're designed for it, you know? We have these sort of animal instincts that other animals do have, that other animals have been studied to pick up from each other, plus, you know, a lot more, like, high-tech human ones, too. And, you know, some people's thermometer is, is really, really high-tech, and it just has a lot of bandwidth, and they absorb things from others that they haven't even asked for, you know, and they really aren't ready for physiologically, and it does overwhelm them mentally and physically to experience. And when their perception downloads that person's inner state, it enters their physiology, right? It enters their mind. And what does it do? It creates a reaction. The mind reacts to that coming in as a sort of attack on it. So it gets really, really intense in there. I'm not like one of those super empathic people, so I don't know all the ins and outs of that experience, but I've heard it described as a lot of things. One of them is that they themselves are just feeling that, and they can't even separate that person's feelings from their own, so they just feel terrible when they're around this person, and they think themselves are just now feeling terrible, or are terrible. Or their mind will start like churning all kinds of ideas around these terrible feelings, and they can have dark thoughts, and who knows what can come up. Either way, they're not able to just kind of like partition it and put it aside and say, oh, that's them, and this is me, and, um, you know, they are separate things. So, yeah, you know, like, who wants that? Like, let's turn that down, please. Like, if you've got like a, like a sluice just like pouring sewage you know, into your experience, you're going to say, where is the off switch, right? And we do this in lots of ways. We narrow our bandwidth deliberately all the time, whether we're empaths or not. If we're not feeling good or we're stressed, what do we do? We drink, right? We, we don't want to experience 
those emotions of stress or mourning or worry. And so we just, we numb ourselves. We turn off our ability to feel, and, uh, or at least we think we do, and we um, no longer have to have an experience we don't want. So we avoid interacting with negativity, whether it's coming from ourselves or other people. And if you're empathic, when it comes from other people, often it then just becomes something that feels like it's just coming from you. You know, your mind just, just looks like it's turning on you, when in fact it just doesn't know how to separate. So um, there are a lot of resources for people like that. I'm not one of them because that's not my <laughs> that's not my field. Uh, so far, I'm really into Carla McLaren's work. You should check her out. Art of Empathy, Language of Emotions. I'm sure there are many others. She is just my favorite to listen to, and uh, just a really really clear, well researched, and really melodious to listen to. I have her audiobooks. And uh, yeah, she's just got a great voice too. Speaks very clearly and um, very compassionately because she is an empath. And so uh, compassion is wired into her and she has absolutely mastered how to be that kind of person, to take in lots of information and process it and not let it touch who she really is, right? Because we don't want to narrow the bandwidth. That's the whole point. I mean, that's why I meditate every day twice a day, because I want to expand and sharpen my perception. I want to be able to take in more information, experience more, learn more, 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 more. That also comes with being more sensitive to others. But simultaneously, my program is geared to strengthening my resilience to that to that increasing bandwidth that's going to let in more information. So these two things have to be part and parcel of each other. Especially, my lord, if you are in the food and beverage industry. I mean, you're like in a room with a hundred people, maybe more, 150 people. Even if it's like a small 30-person restaurant, you are there and you are to some degree absorbing a churning stew of people's baggage that they bring into the restaurant and often unload. They, whether or not they're actually just going to like start like spilling all their problems on you, rarely that happens. And rarely actually that's, has that ever happened to me as a bartender. You know, people have this like idea of bartenders as these... Um, therapists that sit here and listen to like the like sad confused rantings of drunkards at the bar that's not really the the realm that I've ever worked in but people still come in and maybe not even knowing it they're doing it just begin this state of catharsis where they're like oh what a long week oh and just like all of their stress will just start spilling off of them you know and often uh that takes the form of them perhaps being abusive to staff, or at least, you know, rude and um, demeaning. With them being demeaning comes all of their other baggage. So the person they're being demeaning to is also absorbing that, not just perhaps their words. You know, words are really just ideas that reflect in the mind. The intention behind them exaggerates their impact on the person receiving it and it will have tremendously higher physiological impact if it's fueled by, you know, deep issues. Basically, like, service staff are swimming in this stuff all night, and it's affecting them in ways they don't even fully understand. This is all, like, subconscious stuff. This is all stuff churning under the surface of our awareness of what's happening. Because, you know, we only really know stuff is happening if we have, like, a verbal print of it in our minds. Our mind will say, this is happening right now, you know? and you put it into language. But the rest of our experience is like feelings and sensations that don't really make it to that point of verbal expression in the mind. So there's all kinds of stuff going on. You know, 99% of our experiences are probably not verbal. We think, we think really that kind of verbal imprint in the mind is really all that's happening a lot of the time, but there is so much churning. 
And most people don't know how to interact with anything but that verbal printout in the mind. They don't know how to experience their feelings and how to understand the feelings that they are experiencing and interface with them. So they just get knocked around by them. And the untrained empath just gets knocked around by the constant feelings that they are absorbing and then their own physiological reaction to those feelings creating other intense feelings within them. And they can just be a mess. And, you know, a lot of empaths describe the early years of their lives where they were just literally drowning the whole time. So this is service life, whether you wish to admit it or not, and whether you're like an empathic person or not. You are in the trenches of lots of crap happening. I mean, you know, on uh, a Saturday night, our restaurant will do 250 people walking through those doors, eating and leaving. That's 250 potential biochemical signatures that are paddling your nervous system. That's why when servers go out, they drink like they just got out of prison. (laughs) Uh, uh, Drinking after a shift. Wow. Do they down drinks fast? And wow, do they unload a night of intensity? Shit rolls downhill, the saying goes, right? Yeah, so you're absorbing people's crap all night, and then you go out, and you just want to numb that churning stew of feelings in you, and one drink after another. Or whatever your poison is. Marijuana's a lot more fashionable now. A lot of my coworkers are really, really dedicated pot smokers. It might have that effect on them. It doesn't with me. I've given it many chances. And uh, while we're talking about communication and um, being able to interact without neurosis, which I'll get back to, marijuana is an incredible way to really see what it means to... um, trap yourself in an internal labyrinth of paranoia and neurosis about what it is you're saying and the effect it's having on people, I cannot get my way out of that. It's too enveloping when I smoke marijuana. But others, like my wife, uh, it has this incredible soothing effect on them. That sounds nice. (laughs) Never experienced that in my entire life. So anyway, we've all got our ways of buffering this experience of agitation that we get from bouncing around a world of flailing damaged people, basically. Find a way to be able to meet, understand, reconcile, and properly like channel all of what you're absorbing, or section it off rather than attempt to numb yourself from it. It's not going to work in any sustainable way. You basically need to become stronger. You need to make your sense of self sovereign and autonomous and able to still connect and be part of a collective without, without you losing connection to yourself. And... You need to maintain a healthy relationship to that collective and how it's making you feel. So it's really easy to become resentful of humanity and believing that their energy is toxic, quote-unquote, you know, and they are somehow infecting you and you are a victim of them. But... There is actually nothing inherently toxic about their energy. Nothing is inherently bad or evil or anything but actually neutral. It's really your response to it that creates inner toxicity. Now, I'm not dismissing uh, your experience of this because it is a very real thing and it is a very powerful thing to be empathic or sensitive to, you know, what people are giving off and for it to be an unbearable disruption to um, your, your sense of inner health and well-being. And you don't have it easy and I don't envy you because 
you probably have to work harder to uh, stay grounded and happy than than others. Um, but that is exactly what has to happen if you, you know, want to feel better and navigate the public realms better. You need to do practices that basically strengthen you. Because a strength of self results in always having a healthy relationship to what you're experiencing. Which means you don't consider it toxic, even if it's extremely intense and powerful. And you would never do yourself the disservice of considering yourself a victim of it. So yeah, there are so many practices to help you. In addition to anything um, a veteran empath can offer you, um, there are some practices on my site which definitely served me in my strengthening of myself and, and maybe a useful companion along the way as well. That's all on serveconscious.com forward slash learn and uh, or just navigating into the learn part of the menu if you're uh, somewhere on the homepage. Okay, this brings me back to the first kind of challenged listener that I had mentioned. This is, I think, kind of the more obnoxious kind, uh, which makes it unfortunate that it's the kind that I often find myself uh, being. (laughs) Fortunately, this means, since I am such a chronic example of it, I um, have maybe the most to offer in terms of uh, ways of dealing with it. This is the type of bad listener that finds others maybe understimulating, maybe a bit boring. They just don't have the patience for uh, anyone other than themselves. It's more of a self-absorbed archetype of listener, where they'd get more out of a situation where they get to talk about themselves and the listener is just kind of smiling, nodding, validating, and high-fiving whatever they're saying about who they are, what they believe in, what they've experienced, their story, their story, their story, you know, all on the table. So while the highly empathic person tends to get overly stimulated by their environment because they're so open that they get overloaded by what they take in, the self-absorbed bad listener carries overstimulation with them. So that kind of closes them off because there isn't much room for anything else to get in because they already have too much going on inside of them and too much they need to get out. This type of listener is highly challenged by their lack of patience, so they can't wait for an invitation to give their highly illuminating opinions and tell their story and, you know, get across how awesome they are. They can't just be, you know? They can't just let themselves be communicated through their actions, their work, and their silent, caring attention. They need to dictate to the other how they should be perceived. That is the opposite of mastery. A masterful person doesn't have to say much, and often won't. Maybe they'll say something that's even quite enigmatic, you know, (laughs) because they don't need to tell people what to think of them. They don't really care. They know whatever people think of them will be what emerges from them just being authentically themselves. They have nothing to gain from trying to control that. So this example of bad listener suggests weak sense of yourself because you can't just be yourself. You need to present yourself to others for them to validate it. It is dependent on feedback and validation from others. So in this case, there is a weakness in sense of self because it's been outsourced to the external environment and not firmly rooted within. And also, there is a resistance to inputs from one's environment because they, me included, sometimes, let's say, don't want any inputs that can possibly sway their idea of themselves. So there's a closing off because 
A, they just want the outward flow. And then nodding heads, thumbs up, high fives, or, you know, regarding anything that's said. And, and then that's it. Nothing else can get in. People talking about themselves, where they're, they're coming from, their perspective. No, that's too potentially challenging to a very rigid sense of self that has been laid out. This type of bad listener is often easily offended, and it can be surprising because you didn't think they were listening. But uh, once they do, you can see why they were resisting inputs from other people because they just simply can't handle it. They're just too rigid in their self-perception. And I know I have to reconcile these two points because I just said this type of listener has a weak sense of self. So how can you have a rigid sense of self when you also have a weak sense of self? Weak would suggest not rigid. You know, there's no structural integrity. Well, the rigidity is a defense mechanism against not really being sure. It's a uh, kind of a protective cloak. A non-negotiable idea of who you are is just a way of staying safe when you don't really feel certain about who you are when you're not anchored to your calm, stable inner self, then you'll simulate that stability by telling yourself that, you know, your mentally constructed identity, your story, and all of that really impermanent stuff is actually permanent, is actually unchanging and unquestionable. It's a false sense of security that we give ourselves when we aren't really grounded and settled in ourselves. I'm actually going to go out on a limb and say that this category is, like, far more insidiously bad at listening than the empathic, overly sensitive variety of challenged listener. Because uh, someone empathic may want to be a good listener, and in fact may be quite good at creating space. What someone is saying, there's just so much distortion from internal reactions to whatever they're taking in. And there's maybe more tendency to like want to avoid people because of that. So I would say even the first category is more like antisocial than um, bad at listening, so to speak. They could even be great at listening, just bad at metabolizing what they're listening to and more prone to avoiding having that role as listener and avoiding social interaction. The other type might crave social interaction, but they are least even interested in being a good listener. And it's very deceiving because they seem very socially adjusted when you see them. They're talking and chatting and chatting and laughing and having a good time, perhaps. They may even seem, at first, charming and charismatic. But, after a while, the glitter may start to fade. You may find yourself wanting this person to stop talking. (laughs) And if it's ever your turn to speak, all they're doing is waiting for their turn again, rather than actually listening and showing interest. You can tell if someone's listening or not, or if they had listened or not. Because a bad listener, they just look for a buzzword in what you're saying to trigger their opinion on the topic. Or a story that somehow relates to them um, that loosely fits around some word or phrase you said. Rather than actually asking a question to get you to elaborate on something you said. I feel it in me when I talk. Someone will just say something, and I'm like, say your opinion on this. And it's like this really intense inner sort of spring that coils and wants to just vomit out whatever witticism or tale or, you know, opinion I have about some topic that whatever they're telling me brings up. I'm becoming more and more hyper-aware of this and getting better at managing it, but it requires discipline. Uh, It's the same kind of discipline that I think about with um, meditating, um, because this is a mindful practice. You know, this does require mindful listening. It requires disciplining your attention, constantly being aware of when it is fluttering away 
from what's happening, and the quality of it is dissipating, and then returning your attention, like you would a mantra in meditation, or your breath. But you have to do it more rigorously than in meditation. I teach a lot of effortless meditation, where drifting is fine, it's part of it, but in everyday life, it's not fine. <laughs> and people won't consider it fine. People will get annoyed by it. And um, they'll get annoyed when you interrupt them in the middle of what they're saying because you're like, oh, this is what I think. <laughs> so, yeah, you're always bringing your attention back to what? You could say the present moment, sure, but what aspect of it, right? I mean, there's just, there's so much to the present moment. There's so many layers to it. What are you listening for? And this is, I think, helpful with both cases of you know, listening challenges. When you are listening to someone, it is ideal to not pay attention to the content or the content alone. That is not mindful, conscious listening. Being truly conscious in how you listen, you are listening for the context what they're saying. What's beyond simply the words and the information they are getting across? And what's beyond even the intention behind it? So they might be hostile, and their attention might even be to hurt you or demean you, or entertain their friends at your expense, etc., etc., to feel better than you. Is that the context? No, it's not. The context would be why they need to do that, you know, what hurt or sadness or inner turmoil are they externalizing and using you as an instrument to externalize? That is context. And that is what inspires not, you know, a witty response back, not an opinion returned, but compassion, compassionate listening. This is vital to prevent being um, thrown off if something triggers you. And actually, both categories of bad listener are prone to being uh, triggered in different ways. Um, that includes uh, the person that isn't quote-unquote sensitive, even though they might be. Um, they aren't sensitive to stimulus, but their, uh, their pride in themselves, perhaps, or their need for their ego to uh, be respected or unchallenged might be easily challenged if um, what little stimulus they allow in um, challenges their sense of their self. And so they can easily be triggered, too. But if you're ever triggered or offended, it's just simply because you are missing the context and only listening to the content. So going back, if you're, you know, the kind of listener that gets um, bored with people, and uh, whatever it is they're saying, it's because all you're hearing is content and looking for, you know, something interesting to comment on in the words themselves. But paying attention to context is more likely to shut you up and have you observe people in appreciation, like they are, you know, Vessels of the same depth and richness as a piece of art would be, you know, something to be contemplated and offering you fascinating lessons and information. And that goes far beyond whatever words and information someone is carefully articulating. So basically, putting your attention on context means listening not just to what someone is saying, but to why they are saying it, what's motivating them. You're going deeper. It's deep listening that's happening here. And if you recall my episode on mindful communication, where I outlined uh, Marshall Rosenberg's model of communicating um, compassionately with understanding this formula that can basically um, at least bring reconciliation to any possible disagreement, any possible gap of perspectives. 
what was necessary to communicate like that is understanding needs. What does the person really need? And when you pay attention to that and communicate and respond to that and also communicate citing and referencing your own needs, then that is the only way that two people can actually understand each other. But for this understanding to occur, you need to see the context because content isn't going to reveal needs to you. The context will. The why. The what's motivating them, right? We're all motivated by needs that need to be fulfilled. And although this can make us obnoxious sometimes, it can turn us into assholes, really, it is also what really makes us interesting. It's what makes us human beings, you know, beyond the visage that we're trying to shelter ourselves with. So when you tune into that with others, they are the ones that become interesting, you know? Like, characters in a film aren't interesting until you understand what's motivating them, what their needs are. If all they're doing is just giving you random information and ideas and stories, they hardly have the dramatic power that someone who has clearly established their motivations. This should be a helpful antidote to any experiences you have of being the second type of bad listener, the one that gets bored by people. They are suddenly, magically less boring once you plunge your attention into what really motivates them, who they really are. And this doesn't mean asking them, like, penetrating, like, Barbara Walters questions, <laughs> you know. It just means paying attention to all the little nuances of not just what they're saying, how they're saying it, why they're saying it in this particular situation, etc., etc. Inspiration to do this. Actually, you won't even need inspiration to do this. It will just spontaneously occur the more you meditate. My meditation teacher uh, told me to expect this, and boy, was he correct. Um, I didn't know what he meant at first. He said, as I meditated and my awareness became more clear and broad, people would become far more interesting because they would be providing me with a lot more information, nuance, fascinating little aspects of themselves. And also, it would become really fascinating watching all the little dynamics between people uh, form and the dynamic between you and the person you're interacting with and how that's forming. That's always very interesting. And it always teaches me a lot about myself, how I exist in contrast to another person and how my behavior and their behavior might change and play off of each other. It's so interesting and informative and instructive and a source of deepening wisdom and understanding of the world and the complexities of human beings. If you just pay attention, it's there. And once you start paying attention to this, get ready for things to lurch out at you that make you uncomfortable. You might end up seeing a vulnerability or an insecurity or a hurt or neediness, or some aspect of people that we consider quote-unquote weak in our culture, it might reveal itself subtly, and it may reveal itself to you and you only. Others might not see it because they're not paying attention. And you might not like it, and due to our social conditioning, we might be provoked to be appalled by it. Because we are working so hard to not ourselves have these quote-unquote weak qualities. And definitely, definitely it will trigger us if we know that we have these qualities or at least suspect that we have a tremendously high dosage of these qualities. And we see them reflected in someone else and it reminds us of the parts of ourselves we like least 
that tends to be what triggers us most. That aversion that's arising, whatever resentment it is triggering in us, that's a great time to do the opposite. That is an absolute call to be compassionate. If someone is demonstrating qualities you don't like, the first thing you should do is say, do I myself demonstrate these qualities sometime? And if the answer is yes, that is not a time to resent them even more. It's a time to have even more compassion because you are a trained specialist in this area of weakness. (laughs) You are particularly equipped to provide understanding. So show up to that call to be compassionate rather than hoping to push away some reminder of a shadow realm of yourself. There is a Buddhist practice called Tonglen, and it's very powerful. It uh, can be uh, an isolated, contemplative practice, but I believe that it can also be an inaction practice, where in a moment where there is, you know, discomfort happening, aversion, or even a, a really difficult situation, you breathe in the emotional quality of that situation. Breathe in the hurt, breathe in the pain, breathe in theirs and breathe in yours. And then breathe it out. But you're breathing out compassion. You're breathing out goodwill and hoping for that pain to end and hoping for them to achieve happiness, health, well-being, reconciliation. You're hoping for that. And what you're using to make this especially powerful is reference to your own understanding of this, familiarity with it, and therefore oneness with this person or people. I'm going to add a section on Tonglen in my Learn section on my webpage. It greatly inspires you to connect beyond just the surface and into what really needs to be addressed and healed in others and ourselves. Don't be afraid of these qualities. Don't be afraid of interacting with things just because our society has said that they are undesirable. It makes us so compromised with communication to think that putting a need on the table or addressing somebody's need uh, is somehow engaging in the arena of weakness because it is weak to apparently need things. Forgetting this fear of all these weak qualities is what is going to give us a path to becoming strong. If you can actually look at weakness, address weakness, show compassion and understanding for weakness. Tonglen is great for this because Although it can only really be effectively done after the situation or not really when you're in the moment, it can't fully be done. It requires, you know, eyes closed, visualization, you know, a very intent breathing in and out. As a meditative practice, it gets us into the habit of confronting what is displeasurable rather than just our need to seek comfortable and avoid what is uncomfortable, which it is actually you know, the weakest thing you can do <laughs> while we're talking about that. Um, it, it gets us in the habit of really wanting to meet pain and suffering head on. And um, knowing that we know how to process and metabolize it. But I believe you can also do a sort of miniaturized version of it in the moment. You know, you can breathe in people's suffering and breathe out good intention along with listening to them, as long as this doesn't take you away from the moment, you can do that. And knowing that, knowing you're just breathing good intention into the situation, they won't know you're doing it, but they will be able to experience that on a very subconscious level, and they will affect them positively. Your intentions are always affecting the situation. And if they are, positive, constructive, growth-inspiring intentions. It will elevate everything, and people won't know why. And you won't actually have to say much. And you will be a very powerful ally to anyone as a listener, as a mindful, conscious listener. And you will be viewed as strong 
and you yourself will feel strong, grounded in yourself, in a place of tremendous integrity that is unshakable by whatever else is going on around you. And this is really how you establish yourself, not by waiting for your turn to speak and spouting off an opinion. There's certainly a place for that. There certainly is value in it, especially if someone clearly wants your opinion. But I often now just wait to be asked. And in the meantime, provide a space of listening and understanding. And that's truly what people want, just to be seen and understood. And I know you want that too, but you're on a path of self-mastery. And self-mastery means not needing that from others. And of course, in the adolescent phases of the self-mastery path, needing to establish yourself and your opinions and getting feedback from others is really going to be something you find yourself needing, of course. But just don't get bored or resent them if they don't provide that, really. And continually pay attention to what it is that's even going to give you. What, like, you, whenever you spout off an opinion, pay attention to then your mental state. And if that was at all improved by whatever you just put out there. And then contrast that with your mental state when you are listening and compassionate. See what feels more nourished, enlivened, and uh, grounded and strong. Okay, well, I hope you feel like you learned a lot about listening from someone sitting here and talking uninterrupted for over an hour. <laughs> it's like soapboxing. It's such a strange paradox to have to soapbox about listening. It's like the least listen-y thing I could do, have a podcast. Uh, but yeah, okay, to foil this process, I encourage you to please send feedback, interact with me, and let me take in your world, you know, your story, and uh, your notes from the field, your insights, please send them to me. Uh, Stefan at serveconscious.com. Check out the website. There's all kinds of means of contacting me through there as well. Oh, and here's a thing that um, people are doing. Maybe we can do it too. If you're hearing this and you're liking what you're hearing, screenshot this podcast, put it on your Instagram, and tag me, and I shall tag you for doing so and we just kind of mutually high five and showcase each other it's this crazy narcissistic battle for attention that i think you and i can really win together <laughs> if we really try um yeah cool and um stay tuned i'm gonna think about how to kind of talk about uh mindful communication technique i don't know if i can give proper instructions just uh over the air like this um it may have to be like an in-person service offered but i'm gonna see what i can do about that um but otherwise uh, stay tuned for more and stay tuned for more interviews coming up i have got some really awesome humans in the hopper i have two recorded that i can't wait to get edited and published and more scheduled so yeah check that out and check me out on itunes and please leave a review uh if you fancy it's um always good for me to have community feedback all right so i'll see you around check out www.surfconscious.com for all the stuff that i might offer thanks again see you later Bye bye